0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B Y T E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 333. It's titled, How the COVID Shock Nearly Destroyed the Financial System. A year ago today, we reduced stock market exposure and credit risk in the Money for the Rest of Us Plus adaptive model portfolios. Overall, investment conditions were downgraded to red or bearish for the first time since Money for the Rest of Us Plus was launched back in December 2014. Economic trends have been red for nine straight months, but with the uncertainty of the coronavirus and the sharp deterioration of Market trends and market momentum, with very high fear among investors, we reduced risk. We took preventive action in the face of uncertainty. We weren't exactly sure what was going on, how bad it could get. This past week, I read three government reports. The Report of the President's Working Group on Financial Markets Overview of Recent Events and Potential Reform Options for Money Market Funds was published December 2020. I read U.S. Credit Markets' Interconnectedness and the Effects of the COVID Economic Shock, published by the U.S. Security and Exchange Commission, published in October 2020. And I read the Financial Stability Report, published by the U.S. Federal Reserve in November 2020. After reading the reports, I was frankly alarmed about how bad things could have gotten had the Federal Reserve not stepped in in their role as lender and liquidity provider of last resort. Without the Fed and other central banks, there would have been a full-blown financial meltdown. Things had gotten that bad, even in the safest areas of the market, money market funds, the trading of U.S. Treasury bonds. There is an interconnectedness in markets from the riskiest to the safest that isn't often appreciated. I had an experience this past week with interconnectedness. It was kind of a bizarre experience, and my fault. LePro and I had taken a drive to Whitewater Draw, north of Douglas, Arizona, in Agua Prieta, Mexico. We were there to see the Sand Hill Cranes. We decided to take a circuitous route on the way back through Sierra Vista. And as I drove through Sierra Vista, I didn't notice that the state route we were on turned right. I went straight, right up to the gate of Fort Huachuca, an active U.S. Army base. I told the guy at the gate that we were traveling to Tucson, passing through. He said we would need a permit to enter the base. I thought I clarified in order to get the Tucson, I needed to go through the base. And he said, if you don't go through the base, you're going to have to go all the way around. And by all of the way around, I assume he meant all the way around route 191, like we had come from Whitewater Draw. I said, well, how do I get a permit? And he says, you, you can get that in this building. And he pointed to it. So we drove around, went to the building. We started filling out this extensive form. We had to go he processed one at a time, so I went up to the counter first, told him we were trying to get to Tucson, needed a permit to get onto the base. He asked why. said, so we were just passing through, and he says, we don't just pass through military bases. You're going to the West Gate, and he changed my form to say, we're going to the West Gate. But he did an entire background check on me, took my picture, gave me an ID, and as part of that, asked, will I be coming back? And I said, well, given all the trouble to actually get a permit to pass through the base in order to get to Tucson, let's make this permit as long as possible. We both got our permits. We drove into the base, started driving around and trying to find the West Gate to get out so we get to Tucson. We couldn't find it. We kept driving in circles. And, and again, we finally pulled up our map on our phones and on the GPS, and it kept directing us out of the base through the gate that we came in. Like I said, I missed the turn. We didn't even need to be on the base. In this situation, everybody was just doing their job. I was trying to get home. The guy at the gate was trying to process people. The guy in the building was giving out permits. Everybody kind of staying in their lane, in their silo. Everybody hearing but not listening and not recognizing the, the interconnectedness that led to an unwanted outcome. I didn't need a permit to get onto the base. I was just trying to get home. And there was a lot of miscommunication. The financial markets are similar. Participants act in their own self-interest. They stay in their lane and often don't realize how financial markets are interconnected. Actions by some investors impact actions by others. When participants act in a similar way, that causes systemic risk that can lead to financial meltdowns. In the Federal Reserve Financial Stability Report, they contrast shocks versus vulnerabilities. Shocks, they say, are sudden changes to financial or economic conditions. They're typically surprises and are inherently difficult to predict, whereas vulnerabilities build up over time. And the four vulnerabilities that they list out are elevated asset valuations. So that's something they monitor in the report because elevated asset valuations can lead to large drop in asset prices. Excessive borrowing by households and businesses can lead to vulnerability because in the event of shocks, businesses and households that have high debt burdens will need to cut back their spending and reduce their leverage. Excessive leverage in the financial system within the financial sector, such as with banks, hedge funds, and other market participants, who in the face of a shock also need to reduce leverage and start selling assets. And we'll see how that impacted the financial system here a little later in this episode. And the fourth vulnerability is funding risk, which is the idea that investors can choose to withdraw their funds. There can be runs on banks, on money market accounts, on ETFs. And that can cause stress in the financial system as those investment vehicles have to unload assets in order to meet the demand for cash from investors. We saw those actions in March 2020. Individuals, businesses, institutions wanted to get more liquid. They began to sell. They wanted cash. They wanted more of a buffer. They reduced leverage. They wanted lower debt balances. They wanted to reduce counterparty and credit risk. They become more insular, so they weren't impacted by negative events affecting others. And they wanted to move quickly, be a first mover, so they could get out before others and perhaps not be hit by losses that the remaining shareholders would be subject to. Everyone acted at the same time. It was interconnected. And what we saw, because of the demand to sell, was more intense than the demand to buy, that bid-ask spreads widened. The ask is what somebody's willing to sell an asset for, and a bid is what somebody's willing to buy it for. And if those widens, it means that you don't have as many transactions, and in some cases, you don't have any transactions at all, or the cost of doing a transaction increases. It's a sign of market distress, and it can lead to prices falling. We saw credit spreads increase. The yield on corporate debt instruments widened relative to risk free assets or government bonds. There was a liquidity crunch. It was difficult to get liquidity. The internal plumbing of the financial system just wasn't working. The markets were frozen, such as the commercial paper market, which is short term debt issued by corporations. It was bad. And we can see that by focusing on some of the safest sectors of the financial markets, money market funds and U.S. government bonds. In the press release that accompanied the White House report on money market funds, there was a quote by Justin Mucinich, Deputy Treasury Secretary, who said, during March, money markets experienced significant outflows forcing Treasury and the Federal Reserve to step in to prevent a destabilizing run. We must now consider reforms to ensure this vulnerability does not threaten financial stability in the future. Money market funds are a type of mutual fund. They're registered under the Investment Company Act of 1940 and regulated specifically under Rule 2A7. They are very popular as a cash management vehicle. Because at least in the case of retail investors, the net asset value that you get when you buy or sell the fund equals a dollar and is stable in theory. Money market funds are an important source of financing for companies and financial institutions as well as federal, state, and local governments because the money market funds buys the debt of those institutions. There are three types of money market funds. There are government money market funds that invest almost entirely in obligations of U.S. government and its agencies, as well as repurchase agreements or overnight loans that are collateralized or backed by government securities. There are prime money market funds that invest in government debt and corporate debt. And there are tax-exempt money market funds that invest in municipal debt. With regard to the type of investors, there are retail money market funds, which are just for individual retail investors, and they have very low minimums. There are publicly offered institutional money market funds that have higher minimums and are primarily held by institutional investors. And then there are non-publicly offered institutional money market funds that can serve as a money market fund for, let's say, asset managers used for internal cash management. Government money market funds, retail prime, and retail tax-exempt money market funds keep their price shares at a stable net asset value, a dollar per share typically. Now, the underlying prices might be moving a little bit in terms of the price per share, but you're able to buy and sell at the net asset value. Institutional prime money market funds have floating net asset values And that was put in place in 2016 as part of the reform of money market funds that followed the 2008 financial crisis when the Federal Reserve had to step in and again prevent massive liquidation and price falls in money market funds. Now, there's an inherent problem with money market funds. There can be a mismatch between the expectation of investors that the share price for retail funds will stay at a dollar and market conditions. If there's a demand for liquidity by holders of money market funds, the money market fund managers have to sell assets, and that can push prices down, particularly if it's across the entire system, which makes it more difficult to maintain that dollar net asset value. During March 2020, there were significant flows into government market funds and outflows from prime money market funds. And because of those outflows, there were actions that money market funds took and were forced to take because one of the reforms that were put in place following the the 2008 financial crisis is money market funds have to maintain certain liquidity measures. They have to hold at least 10% of their total assets in daily liquid assets, assets that can be redeemed on a daily basis, and at least 30% in weekly liquid assets. If they go above that amount, if they approach the 30% threshold, the money market funds can actually implement gates, prevent shareholders from exiting, or charge a redemption fee for exiting. The presence of those gates actually encouraged more liquidation, particularly from institutional prime money market funds. As they were monitoring the risk and they saw that potentially there could be a gate imposed, institutions pulled even more money out, forcing those money market funds to sell even more assets, more commercial paper assets, and not buy any. Corporations couldn't issue new commercial paper because there wasn't the demand. And so those corporations were dependent on those that commercial paper to fund their daily operations. And so they drew down their credit lines from banks. And so banks saw a huge takedown of credit lines. And these Credit lines typically are not supposed to be drawn down. They're sort of there as part of the overall relationship with the bank. But the corporations were taking down these huge amounts of credit because they could no longer issue commercial paper. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. With everything getting more expensive these days, it's wise to find ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. You can do that with NetSuite. And by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com/david. That's netsuite.com/david. netsuite.com/david. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. and the inability to issue new commercial paper, the yield on double a rated non-financial commercial paper relative to a risk-free rate reached historical highs. And the spread for a rated financial commercial paper widened to its highest level relative to risk-free rates since the 2008 financial crisis. Those widening spreads put downward pressure on the prices of money market fund portfolios. They were at the risk of having to strike a net asset value less than $1, which could exacerbate the crisis, causing even more investors to want to pull their money out of money market funds. At the end of February, prime money market funds owned about 19% of outstanding commercial paper. But from March 10th to March 24th, they cut their holdings by about $35 billion and accounted for 74%. Of the overall decline in commercial paper outstanding something was playing out similarly in municipal money market funds where a big holding is something called variable rate demand notes these are longer term municipal bonds but give the holder the right to put the bond back to the dealer so that they're liquid during march Tax-exempt money market funds reduced their holdings of these variable rate demand notes by about 16 percent between March 9th and March 23rd. And then those dealers had to try to sell those, and again, that pushed up the yield and the prices fell and put pressure on the net asset value of these tax-exempt money market funds. Between March 11th and March 24th, institutional prime money market funds saw 30 percent of their assets leave, about $100 billion. Redemptions in retail prime money market funds was about 9% of total assets, or $40 billion. And tax-exempt money market funds saw about 8% of their assets leave. As those outflows occur, some funds approach that 30% minimum threshold for weekly liquidity assets, but they were afraid to put gates because they would potentially increase the demand for exits from other money market funds that those sponsors might have managed. It was at this point on March 18th that the Federal Reserve, with the approval of the Secretary of Treasury, authorized the Money Market Mutual Fund Liquidity Facility. It was a facility that would provide loans to banks so that they could buy assets from money market funds. And these were non-recourse loans. And so the banks would borrow money from the Federal Reserve to purchase assets from money market funds. Those assets served as collateral, but the banks wouldn't be on the hook if the value of that collateral fell. The Federal Reserve and the U.S. Treasury would be on the hook for that. About $50 billion was borrowed from that facility by early April. Or about 5% of the net assets of prime and tax-exempt money market funds. After that, things settled down. But they would not have settled down without the Federal Reserve backstopping money market funds because of this demand for liquidity. Now, the report lists out different recommendations to make retail prime money market funds have floating net asset values to charge redemption fees, to have a capital buffer, and other options. There wasn't one specific recommendation. But there was stress in the financial system, short-term funding stress. The SEC report on interconnectedness of the financial system discussed three stresses. Short-term funding stress that's caused by a sudden elevated demand for liquidity, one of the other areas besides commercial paper that we saw this was in US treasuries. Hedge funds and other entities that needed to deliver chose to sell what was the most liquid asset, typically, and that's treasury bonds. Many of these treasury bonds were held as part of repurchase agreements, overnight loans. And we discussed repurchase agreements or repos in episode 270. You can get more detail on those investment vehicles there. But there was huge selling of US Treasuries. We also saw a widening of the bid-ask spread. And a disconnect between the pricing of treasuries that are known as off the run, so they're seasoned, they've been out a while versus on the run, the most recently issued treasury bond. There were pricing discrepancies big, the biggest we've ever seen. And there are pricing discrepancies between the Treasury bond market, and Treasury bond futures. Again, sign of distress in some of the most riskless assets. Financial Times reported that to quell the turmoil, the Fed injected trillions of dollars into the repo market, as well as committed to buying an unlimited quantity of Treasury securities. The report noted this speedy, sizable, and sweeping intervention. That's what saved it. The central bank's action, because the Fed was willing to buy unlimited amounts and enter into the repurchase agreement market, liquidity improved and things settled down. Another stress that the SEC mentioned is the market structure liquidity-driven stress. When everyone's trying to sell, markets where dealers are typically involved, such as the corporate bond market, the repo market, they didn't want to participate there's some evidence that they were reluctant to buy and meet sellers' demands because they also have capital constraints. So there wasn't enough dealer action to facilitate trading. And that resulted in the huge jump in bid-ask spreads for a number of different asset classes. Commercial paper, treasury bonds, corporate bonds, high-yield bonds, non-investment-grade bonds saw their highest bid-ask spreads ever. The final stress that the SEC report mentions is long-term credit stress, the viability of these corporations longer term, and the potential default risk on these corporate holdings, as well as municipal holdings, bank loans. And that's still playing out because we're still in an economic recovery. Now, because of the Federal Reserve and other central banks' actions, spreads have narrowed tremendously because Central banks acted so quickly, we never saw how bad things could get. It prevented an even greater panic and runs on money market funds, ETFs, mutual funds, and other asset classes. But that is the role of the central bank. What's disheartening is it happened in 2008 and it happened again in 2020. It's as if the underlying plumbing of the system doesn't work because of this rush to reduce leverage and to get liquid, the unwillingness of dealers to step in. It's the Federal Reserve and other central banks with their unlimited balance sheets that end up solving the problem. And that presents moral hazard, where entities perhaps will take more risk than they otherwise would knowing central banks do this. Or we see zombie companies that shouldn't be there. There isn't the market discipline because the central banks have to keep coming in and save the day. And it makes it difficult to price risk. It worked this time. We had the fastest bear market recovery ever because central banks acted more quickly than they did back in 2008. What do we do as investors recognizing There are these stresses out there, this demand for liquidity, to delever, to access cash whenever there's some type of shock, and then it cascades through the system. We dodged a bullet this time. I think what we need to do is monitor these things, monitor the risk, monitor the vulnerabilities, the asset valuations, the economic trends the amount of leverage in the system, the spreads and how spreads for corporate bonds and other risk assets are changing. I do that monthly in the Money for the Rest of Us Investment Conditions report. I share the data, provide commentary. I do this to manage my own assets and also to help others. Ideally, we should have a capital buffer to protect us so we don't necessarily need to get more liquid if we don't have to. We can't get complacent, yet we still need to take risk so that we can earn positive real returns above and beyond inflation as we save for retirement or invest in retirement. So we can't just not participate, but we have to recognize that the risks are there. We need to monitor them and be thankful that central banks were willing to act in their role as lenders and liquidity providers of last resort. But I still kind of have a problem with that. It's alarming that that is what has to happen every time. But that's where we are. Hopefully, there'll be some additional reforms. I know a number of money market sponsors have exited the prime money market business. Vanguard converted one of their institutional prime money market funds to a retail government money market fund. They don't want to participate anymore. Fidelity closed some of their prime money market funds. Because there's just a lack of interest because of the potential gates and redemption fees. And if those type of things are placed on tax exempt and retail prime money market funds, you'll probably see less demand there. I know I told PLUS members heading into the crisis, don't hold prime money market funds. The safest thing to do is to hold government money market funds. So we'll see how this evolves. But we need to recognize that the risks are there, even though it looks like everything recovered smoothly. That's episode 333. Thanks for listening to the episode. If you would like to become a better investor, I have two ways I can help with that. First, consider signing up for my weekly email list, the Insider's Guide. It's where I share about that week's podcast episode, share the links and other resources I used, and share an essay on money, investing, and the economy, as well as other valuable content. You can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com. If you would like additional help, particularly to monitor the risk that we talked about in this episode with the financial system, to have a monthly investment conditions report that you can review in 20 minutes, you can listen to the audio version and be up to speed on what's going on with markets and risk, as well as access to model portfolio examples, you can do that with a Money for the Rest of Us Plus membership. It's where you can get tools, training, a community, and other resources to become a better investor. To invest like a professional. We would love to have you as a PLUS member. Please come join our community. You can learn more at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. i am not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money investing, and the economy. Have a great week.